the OSS Cubed is back with over $14 million in guaranteed prizes from September 24th to October 22nd, featuring $2 million Sunday tournaments on October 15th and October 22nd. And it's waiting for you at America's Card Room. Okay, welcome to Ask Alex, episode 146 on the OneOuter.com podcast, sponsored by AmericasCardroom.com. If you want 27% rate back from AmericasCardroom.com, simply sign up for your account by clicking on one of the ads or banners on the OneOuter.com website. Follow us on Twitter at OneOuter.com and join the Facebook group, Facebook.com slash groups slash OneOuter. This episode and all other previous episodes are on the OneOuter.com website and via iTunes for free. If you want to send questions in for Alex on a future show, then please email questions at OneOuter.com or you can tweet them or post them in the Facebook group. Alex, you are moved to Jersey now, you're all settled in and I believe you're now legally on the road, you can drive a car like a, a big grown-up now. <laughs> 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 But I, I take it you're still one of these guys that's probably still going to use public transport and Uber and that, but you want to have the option. Yeah, I, Alan, it's good to be here. Thank you guys for having me on your car stereo or whatever. And, uh, yeah, anyway, sorry, phone is going off. Let me turn that on silent. But, yeah, um... Yeah, I want. I still use public transit here in Jersey. I it would be kind of expensive in order to use a car uh, in this part of the country. Yeah. I just yeah, I didn't want to get my driver's license here, and I hadn't been back to the states in ten years or something. So when I was for those of you who haven't heard this, the reason I don't have a driver's license is when I was eighteen, I moved. Well, I didn't have one in high school because I couldn't afford a car and I couldn't afford driver's ed. Uh, when I went, when I got out of high school, I lived in the U District in Seattle where there's, to give you an idea of how dense that is, I think there's five movie theaters within six blocks. So pretty much whatever you want, you could walk to. Uh, I moved to South Korea about a year later. Nobody drives there. I moved to Malta a year later. Nobody drives there. And then uh, I moved to Costa Rica where if you drive, you will get killed is what I felt like. You, you were better off just paying a taxi driver who actually knew what he was doing uh, six bucks to get you across the city. And then, yeah, so anyway, I come back. I'm 29 years old. I don't have a driver's license. And I'm thinking, I do not want to turn 30 and not have a driver's license. I don't want to be that person. Mm -hmm. So really the options were learn in Arizona, well, learn the rules of the road, uh, because I found out they were different than Costa Rica. People have, you know, different people have the right of way uh, in different countries. Uh, learn in Arizona or learn in New Jersey, New York with all that crazy traffic. And I said, eh, I think Arizona would be a lot easier. So, yeah, I took my driver's test first try. I got a 92. I took, I took a turn five miles an hour too, too slow because I was trying to be safe in front of the instructor. Apparently that got me dinged. And I went two miles too slow. I thought I was in a 25. I was in a 35. So a few, for a few seconds, I was just driving 10 miles an hour. And then I, and then I was thinking, hey, that guy's really riding my ass. Oh, 
Oh, I'm in a 35. Okay. So, yeah, got the driver's license. That was nice. And, uh, yeah, now I'm out in Jersey and taking tra- planes, trains, and automobiles so everywhere. You, you, you mastered the flop, but you've not mastered the turn yet. <laughs> Come on, that's oh, good. that's why you get the big bucks. <laughs> Come on, that's good. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Are you a father? That was a real dad joke. Yeah, I know. I'm, do, I'm doing... Well, I was 34 yesterday. Um, so, I, it was my Perfect. birthday yesterday. Yeah, I turned 34. Um, so, I got four years on you. Yeah, you do, you old man. Yeah, you wait until you get to this age and, you know, that's it. It's, it's, <laughs> it's good. It's, it's, it's still the same. <laughs> but yeah, yeah de- definitely more uh, dad jokes and crap like that wordplay that you just, you know, I don't know. It's weird. You're shy um, away from when you're yeah. a good, sensible yeah. adult. Yeah. <laughs> they're that bad that they're good. You still need to say them. You know, <laughs> they, need to, they need to be said. Um, actually, I should give a shout out. I, my friend I was talking with recently. Um, I mentioned a podcast that I, another podcast that I listened to, and I've been listening to this for years. I mean, way back, 2011 or before then, even. And wow. um, it's called it's called Gambling with an Edge, and mm. it's uh, two guys in Vegas. Um, Bob Dancer, who's like a professional video poker player, and this guy Richard Munchkin, who's a fascinating character. Um, he's like one of the best advantage players, as they're called in the world. You know, blackjack, other games, casino. Just looks for the edge. All this. Um, he's in the blackjack hall of fame. One of the best card counters on the planet. He also, in the late eighties, early nineties, was a director of like maybe ten or so really like third. No, I don't want to say third rate, but that sort of uh, kung fu movies that were out there and just straight to video stuff one's called ring of fire ring of fire Two, all these things deadly bet one's called just search the youtube for some trailers for like deadly bet that's one of, that'll give you an example of like the sort of films you know straight to vhs things but really fascinating guy anyway i've been listening to a few of those again they had lane flack on a few months ago but they they had the girl that was involved in the ivy uh baccarat edge sorting uh, case, the girl that was his accomplice, who when they were going to casinos and playing baccarat, it was her that wow. was doing this. So they had her on for an interview, and it was just an excellent interview. Um, if you go through their archive, um, it's Kelly Queen of Sorts or something. The episode's called, and it's really good. But it was funny because I was listening to their podcast, and their mic quality is terrible. The background noise sometimes you can hardly hear the host in it. It really reminded me of my show, so um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the co- the content's excellent, but the production, you know, is is what it is. But um, yeah, check it out. Anybody that's really interested to all aspects of gambling and getting an edge, and you know, whatever they've had lots of it. Like some of the stories of the card counters and these guys that go out and seek edges at roulette and they're clocking roulette wheel. You know, don't let anyone tell you any game's unbeatable because. Some of these guys out there are, you know, just crazy. The the work that they put in and find this edge somewhere. And they were there was one of them t- uh, telling a story about they found some game where their EV was like two thousand dollars an hour. This game, and they hit it for months and months and months, and eventually someone like closed it down. But the IV episode's really good because this she's doesn't speak much English, so they have a translator there. They also have the excellent 
author Michael Kaplan, who writes all the gambling stuff, he's on the episode because he wrote an article all about it. And they're really, she's just saying things that she probably shouldn't be saying. You could just imagine Phil Ivey's like going, oh, don't say, you know, don't tell people this and that. But some of the stories um, are excellent. And it's it's really amusing as well. It's quite funny. She's got a great sense of humor. So definitely check out that episode anyway for anybody wanting to listen to another podcast as well. Um, I just thought I'd mention it because it is it's really, really good. And I spoke to my friend and he never heard of it. And I, was, I just assumed I've mentioned it on the show and assumed I've told him, but maybe not. Maybe I've been keeping it to myself uh, for, for all, the, all these years. But it's really good podcast and check, definitely check it out. You should check it out as well, Alex. It's, yeah, it sounds fun. I, yeah. I, I'm intrigued by the Kung Fu movies. I want to meet this guy now. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, um, he's just one of these guys that like, I've read other sort of interviews from. He wrote uh, Gambling Wizards, conversations with like top gamblers, and he spent some time with Billy Walters, and a huge interview with him. This other guy that was like crushing horse racing for millions in Hong Kong with some computer simulator. Um, there, Chip Reese, there's a big Chip Reese interview in it. He interviewed Chip Reese for like. And an in-depth interview, you know, it's a really good book you should check out. It's on Amazon, Gambling Wizards, uh, Conversations with the World's Top Gamblers or something it's called. And uh, that was kind of the inspiration for me to start OneOuter.com and kind of go in full circle. I read that book and thought, I'm going to go out and just interview poker players, you know, as many as I can sort of thing. So I'm looking that up right now. Gambling yeah. Wizards, you called it? Gambling Wizards by Richard Munchkin. And it's Munchkin as in the Munchkins from... Uh, Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz. Yeah, I bet he's never heard a joke about that. And I think he actually changed his name to that because he's a really wee guy and like he wanted a name, you know, like for being a director. He ah! changed it. Yeah, it's not his real name. I read it's not his real name. It's not his birth uh, name. He changed his name to Richard Munchkin. So. I'm gonna change my middle name to Assassinato. So. <laughs> yeah, you could. Why not? Uh, um, so, do you, guys, do you guys know my middle name? Um, Have I ever said it? No, I don't think you have. It's super Scottish. It's Mackenzie. It, uh, I, now that I think you have maybe mentioned yeah, it to it's me. A, it's also it's a woman's name in the United yeah. States. So, yeah, yeah. I'm not, I usually don't share it that often. But, yeah, Carlos now has Mackenzie's Law, which is any goofy thing that can happen to me will happen to me. And, yeah. So, anyway, gambling wizards. All right, looking it up. I got it on my docket of things to do. Yeah, and, it's, it's yeah. Excellent. What else? What else are we talking about? We usually BS for another eighteen minutes. I'm I'm feeling lonely. Well, yeah. what else are we supposed to BS about? Oh my God, this is so 1980s book cover. Oh this yeah, amazing. Yeah. Oh my yeah. God, dollars and cents and four aces with a queen. Oh, and horse <laughs> racing. This is perfect. It's good. Some of the interviews are. I mean, as I say, Chip Reese is definitely one. And a few of the other Billy Walters is interested. There's every interview is great in it. It's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely worth reading. Pick up a copy. Um, definitely. Uh, what else can we BS about? Oh, I'm going to see the new It movie tonight at one minute past midnight. The first showing. Oh uh, yeah. With my friend. Yeah. So uh, I heard it's supposed to be really good. Stephen King himself said. He's amazed at how good it is. So yeah, he didn't know. say that about Dark Tower, did he? I don't think so. I've not saw Dark Tower yet, but um, I've not heard great things about it. Well, I don't even think he likes the books much, so... Right, right. He literally 
I read every single book in that series. He literally apologizes before the ending. Mm. There is like there are three pages where Stephen King breaks down the fourth wall and he goes, "You probably shouldn't read this ending." And then the ending comes, and you go, right. "Wow, I'm really." angry I read that ending. I don't know why I read it, but when the author himself tells you this is the ending and you're not going to like it, but yeah, <laughs> anyway, yeah, great, good stuff, good stuff. I get. I guess that answers some people's questions. Yeah, there, there is a few, so we'll see how we're going to go, um, because one of them is actually book-related as well, so... Um, we'll finish with that one. Some softballs today. I just moved. I'm tired. Mm, they, they are what they are. You, you uh, make them yeah. softballs. Figure. <laughs> yeah. um, okay. The first question is from Raymond. My question for the podcast is to do with facing three bets in six max cash games with marginal hands. For example, I raise king jack suited from cut offer button, and I'm three bet from the blinds. Let's say I don't have hands on players here. What is the best course of action when 100 big blinds or more deep? Same for pairs from 10s down to 2s. I hate to 4-bet these hands, then fold to 5-bets, but also don't want to flat when I'm dominated. Thank you for your question, Raymond. Raymond or Draymond? Raymond. Raymond. R-A-Y. Yeah. Well, let me see if I can offer some. All right, guys, go, go, Gadget Alex. Let's do this. Not going to lie. Little jet-lagged, little uh, somebody somebody ran a jackhammer at 8 this morning when I was in Queens. Didn't sleep that well, so, yeah. All right, Alex is showing up. All right. All right. You guys ready? Here we go. Now, King Jack suited. Beautiful hand to flat in position. Uh, I really like that hand. Now, you got to ask yourself, what am I worried about when I flat with that hand? And I think, well, let's try this on Barry. Let's all embarrass Barry. Barry, what are you worried about with hands like King Jack, King Ten, Ace Jack? Uh, well, being dark like King Queen or Ace King. Yeah, exactly. Now, how? When is that going to get expensive? Is that going to get expensive on the flop, Turner River? Um. Lot probably um, if well, de- obviously depends when the cards come and what what you're hitting. Oh yeah, you're good proceeding. point. Good point. Let's say the board cut. Uh, let's say you flop an inferior pair. Well, usually the guy barrels down, right? Yeah. And that's when you get a problem. Yeah. Uh, that river bet is pretty significant. This makes it a really good idea to look at what the guy does on multiple streets before it comes out there. Uh, if you want to see something very inspiring. Watch people play chess in New York, and watch them set up five, six-move volleys. And it's very interesting because these guys are playing for $20, and by the way, half the time the crackhead doesn't pay up, but they, for $20, they will go five, six, seven moves ahead. You're playing poker for thousands of dollars, and a lot of times you guys don't think five, six, you don't think three moves ahead. Mm-hmm. If the board comes with a king... You're going to call down, most assuredly. Why would you not want to know what the guy does on flop, turn, and river? If the guy goes bet, 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 like it goes 80, 80, 80, that board comes queen, jack, two, and you have king, jack, you're calling down, especially if there's missed flush draws. 
If he goes 80-20-20 and you call in the turn, you have just lit money on fire. And many people will not go that extra mile. They just will not do it. Mm-hmm. And that leaves me befuddled. I, I don't really get it. Now, let's say you don't have many hands on somebody, as uh, Raymond asked for. What you need to do then is look at what the field these days is doing, because this person does belong to the field. Obviously, if you can specify the field, that's even better. So let's say let's say he's on a particular site. You just take all your hands from that particular site. So something I like to do is I want to see how often my fears actually manifest themselves. So in this case, I'm worried about being triple barrel. So what I do is I filter on hold a manager, quick filters, river call. And I set up, I can look at the line and I look at call, 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 right? Which would be me calling down three streets. And I look at how many of those are, how many of those are, how many of those there are, sorry, cannot speak English today, guys. By the way, I am speaking more Spanish in New Jersey than I spoke in Costa Rica. I am speaking Spanish every single day when I walk around Kearney, New Jersey. Anywho, you want to look for the number of times you call down versus how many times you flat for three, that you are going to find the number to be very small. Now, the other thing you want to look for, because the other thing you're worried about is he bets the flop, he checks the turn, you bet for value, he check raises. Disaster, right? Mm. We hear people doing this all the time. Well, I don't want to bet the turn, he check raises, because I'll just be sick. That's called entitlement. I don't want to do a lot of things, because it's uncomfortable. I don't like waking up and running in the morning. Oh, if I run and go out and get hit by a bus, I'll just be sick. But it's still a good idea to run, generally, because you're likely not going to get hit by a bus. And you are probably not going to get check raised. Something you can do on your hand history filters, put hero continuation bet, and then put flop is check raised. Right? So this will show how often you were check raised. Because I assume if you're the C better, you can't be check raising. Right? Now, you will find you take the number of hands you got check raised versus how many times you C bet. You can filter for both of those. A lot of times, I actually just did this in a lesson before we got here. I found the guy was getting check raised 6% of the time. What do you think he, a guy has when he check raises you 6% of the time? He's got the hand. Almost always he's got the hand. Or he has the one bluff he's done since uh, the Reagan administration. God, that's such a go-to, going to the presidential. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Sorry. Going haywire today. So, that person is the field. If you are playing someone from the field, generally... If you have to make an assumption, a good one to make is he's not check-raised bluffing you. Now, I assume the majority of our listeners here are 100 NL players, 200 NL players. And I can tell you, I, I, unlike many tournament professionals, I paid my bills with cash games for years. 
I am a large winner in cash games. I am also, I have never been beyond 2-4 and made a profit. Never have. Because what I did is I read the field, and I noticed the field was horribly imbalanced at 100 NL, 200 NL, and 400 NL, and I busted my ass learning out a 24 table for 6 hours, 8 hours, 10 hours a day. And it was good money. Now, once you get to 510, you got to start balancing ranges. That's honestly when I lost interest. And tournaments were starting. That was about the time I final tabled San Remo. And coincidentally, I started finding tournaments very interesting at that point. And what I can tell you, though, is generally you flop one pair, you bet for value, you check raise, you fold. That's that. They triple barrel you, they generally have one pair bid. You're going to find out. If you get any more hands, you can confirm this. Now, with twos through tens, it's funny to me you ask about them as if they're somehow uniform. But again, a lot of these hands, the king-jack suit is a far superior hand. The king-jack suited is a far superior hand to flat with because it has a lot of equity versus what your opponent continues with. It makes straights and flushes, which have a ton of equity versus your opponent's top pairs. The problem with 10s, 9s, 8s, 7s is they have a ton of equity versus your opponent's check folding range. Your opponent misses, bets, you call, turn, check, you bet, they fold. You almost don't need a hand. Therefore, flatting with these hands are not, is not my favorite thing in the world. Tens, nines, eights, a lot of times you can get calls from slightly worse pairs, so they do have value. Mm-hmm. Sevens, sixes, fives, fours, threes, twos. If you're not bluffing on a number of boards, I don't love it. So something I'll see is a uh, guy's three bet is... 13%, his C-bet is 80%, and in one three-bet pot, I've seen him check back top pair. That, to me, means when he C-bets, he doesn't have much. If you look at, if you look at on Flopzilla, he, you have to remember his three-betting range is not perfectly the top 13%. Many people will flat queen-ten offsuit, but three-bet queen-six suited or something along those lines. If you look at that slight polarized 13% range, on a number of boards, you're going to find it the person missed. So if I have twos and the board comes jack 6-5 and the person C-bets, I know that board has missed him the majority of the time. I am raising with my threes, with my twos. Because if he three-bets me, I really have nothing, so it's easy to fold. If he calls... I, I'm likely going to have two shots to hit my set and have the angriest person you've ever seen with top pair when I turn over my hand on the turn of river. Uh, but I do have a little equity. I have a chance at a huge hand or I have nothing, which it makes them exquisitely, exquisitely good bluffing hands. They also don't block anything. So let's say you raise with... I, I'm very interested in the fact that you didn't put ace-10 offsuit in here. What do I do with ace-10 offsuit? Ace-9 offsuit, ace-10 offsuit, 
frequently, like you can flat with Ace-10 offsuit, but I don't love to do it. Ace-9 offsuit, let's use this as an example. The board comes Jack a 5 and you decide to raise. Well, unfortunately, you're blocking Ace-10, Ace-Queen, Ace-King, a bunch of hands that were in his bet folding range that had you beat. So it's less likely he has those, and it's a little more likely he has pairs. You can't really beat anything when you see that, so you can't call. And your hand is really unlikely to improve to the best hand. You don't even know if you want to turn the ace. So generally, now during your question, many people probably scoffed at you saying, I hate to four-bet fold these hands. There's a lot of times you should four-bet fold. It turns a greater profit than just flatting. Especially if you're out of position, there is this new thing where if you flat a three bet out of position, you're somehow a, a normal good player. I don't know when playing three bet pots out of position became so good. I have the analytics. I still think it's pretty terrible. There are people that will turn a profit. They tend to be very selective about the players they will flat versus they're very good at check raising. They're very selective about the three bets they flat, very selective with the hands they pick, but most of you aren't. Most of you are just calling because it's more fun. And that's fine, but don't kid yourself that you're a great poker player. If you call a three bet out of position, nine times out of ten, the hand is done. You're trying to save your big blinds, especially if it's a sizable three bet. If you four bet versus many people, I was looking at four bets versus a database. I had a guy just flipping out this morning every time he got four bet. I said, well, buddy, let's look at what their average open is. So we looked at every player on every site he was playing. Average opening percentage was 20, 20%, right? But I said, okay, just to help you out for your spew monster tendencies, let's make it 25%. Now let's see... When you three bet, how often do you get four bet, right? We found out it was 13%. So 13% of 25% of hands, we come to about 4% of the hands, which is about jacks plus, ace, king plus. Do you think you should be five betting that range? Now, you need to understand that everybody else subconsciously has been seeing that's most people's four betting ranges these days. Some people have biases. Many people do subconsciously catch that the four bet is stronger than it's ever been before because it is so in vogue to flat with the three bet. Therefore, you should be turning more hands into four bets. I, it was a very interesting process when I was playing WPT Prague. I couldn't open a single hand from under the gun, under the gun plus one, under the gun plus two, unless I was willing to four bet. So, I opened Ace-10, the guy slid in the 3-bet, and the second the action was on to me, I 4-bet it back, and I won the pot, and I didn't get to open from those positions for another 17 orbits. You could possibly make a bigger raise to stymie them into flatting. You could also, if you have somebody 3-betting you very small, you could raise very small to call a very small three bet. You can turn that into a profitable hand. 
You can donk lead quite a bit. You can raise, call the three bet the second the flop comes out there, lead 80% of the pot. It is hilarious to see how people respond to that. And you have to follow that up with double barreling. But what I'm telling you is the, the direct approach right now, which is I flat any three bet out of position, see if I hit the board, and if I don't, I check fold. That is losing you money. If you're in position, you can make money because you can float more. But you need to know what the guy is doing on flop, turn, and river more often. Good luck to you. Okay. Now I'm looking, I can hear myself back, Alex, there. Now you know what I have to deal with all day. <laughs> anyway, um, how about okay. now? Can you hear yourself? No, no, it's fine. It's okay, fine. Right. Um, this one, right, it's another cash game question. I think we should just do it as I've got them here. Um, right. This one is from T. Hello, I've been playing cash games mainly as I don't have time to play tournaments. I've noticed a huge increase in people betting over the pot and jamming over pots on rivers to both my value bets and also when I check. Sometimes I snap call and they are holding complete air or bottom pair. Is it truly people trying to buy the pot and think I can't possibly call with the nuts? It might work, but I'm usually just a calling station. Any ideas on this recent trend? I think we got an email like that a few months ago. Is that, I remember you talking about people jamming the pot and stuff. Maybe not. Maybe it was the same guy who's not heard the response. But anyway, run with that. Thank you for your question. Generally, I'm not surprised that they have bottom pair when they jam because that's a perfect hand to turn into a bluff. You're blocking bottom set. Your hand doesn't have enough equity to call versus a bet. So you turn it into an overbet. If I... Let's say... Let's say I bet two times the pot on the river. What percentage of the hands must you call with or raise with in order to make sure I can't do that with any two cards? Think of an answer right now. And if you don't know that answer, I want you to ask yourself how you think you're going to make money at No Limit Hold'em. Do you think even the Flamingo doesn't know the odds off of every one of their bets? You need to do something with one-third of your hands. Now, most people would shy away from doing that because we know through experiential wisdom that if somebody bets two times the size of bot on the river, they generally have it. That's usually somebody who got very excited with a set. That's usually somebody really trying to get value. And once in a while, it's a desperate bluff. And most of the time, we can figure out which one is which. Because it's so blindingly obvious, because this is such a rare play. <clears throat> if you were calling with one-third of your hands, if somebody bet two times the size of the pot on the river, in 99% of games on Earth, you would be lighting money on fire. And thus, the overbetter has an edge. Because the overbetter is going to make that bet, and you are not going to call with one hand out of three. If you can imagine a flush draw coming in, the guy barreling two times the size of the bot, and you needing to call with second pair 
in order to make him unprofitable, you are starting to understand why the overbet is such an extreme move. Five years ago, I wrote an article called It's Called No Limit for a Reason. Everybody acts as if you have to bet one third pot, one half pot, two thirds pot if you're feeling really sexy. Yet once they started using these solvers, what was the first thing the computer started doing? Every time MIT or one of these universities has tried to program a bot to understand mathematically how to get humans to do what it wants, what does the computer do? The computer is overbetting constantly. Constantly. I probably shouldn't give away this move, but I'm going to because I've decided to be a full-time teacher. And anyone who invests in me in the future needs to know that I do, I am more studied as a player than most. So that does affect my equity, but you guys will not be affected by this. I overbet bluff in really weird situations all the time. I'll give you one. I raise from the small blind. In the big blind, I get one of these guys calling me who looks like he has a problem with me. I know no seed that is going to work. Let's say there's 1,000 in the pot. The board comes jack for seven. He's expecting a C-bet of 500. He has 10,000 back. I bet 3,200. Now think about having King Jack there at the beginning of a live tournament and your opponent has done that. Yeah. What would you do? I'd fold. Everybody folds. They show me, then they fold. Then they mock me. And which is fine, I just go, yeah, I hate pocket jacks, is always my line, right? I hate queens. But if you're folding king jack there, you're folding 80, 90% of the hands, whatever it is. You folded almost top pair, top kicker there. And maybe that was a I To make a point, I used a really big bet. You can sometimes just do the same thing betting 2,000. And if you really want them to be scared, put in the chips really softly. If you splash them in, which is also fun, I don't find it to be as effective. The reason I hammer the basics so much is because they are so essential. The problem with the basics is they're called the basics. There's nothing basic about that. John Wooden, the most legendary NCAA basketball coach there ever was, 15 championships. He's competing with about 2,000 other schools. 15 times this guy won it all. 85% of their practice was passing the ball. Because every turnover was a chance for the other team to win. A turnover maximum costs you three points in basketball. A turnover in poker, giving the guy control of the hand, one errant bet could cost you the tournament. When number one pocket fivers hire me as their coach, do you think we go over thin river spots? No. 
are on the train, I have my laptop open, and I'm hammering them on basics. You bet this much, how often does it have to work? What hand does that mean he needs to call with? Just this, again and again and again and again. And I do think you're going to see overbets come more into the framework, especially as these solvers become more popular. By the way, I'm not a big fan. They're very fascinating. These, but NBA basketball, like what they will do is the coaches will run the simulations and they'll note where the c- computer errors, uh, where the computer errors, uh, where the computer dif- differs from their strategy, and then they try to prove it mathematically. They don't just take it wholesale. They try to understand why the computer came to that realization, and sometimes they check their assumptions and find something's wrong. Many people are not checking their assumptions when they set up these. And so there's a lot of times it'll say your optimum play is to just bomb 8x pot. And I can tell you experientially 1.6x pot cut into the, cut into the pot after a two-minute time delay will have the exact same effect. You don't want to lose that human element. I would really recommend, if you want to understand how triple barrels work, how overbets work, program a triple barrel into Cardrunner's EV. It's very simple. You copy and paste a hand history online where you triple barreled. You adjust the range at every node. And then at the end, change the bet size on the river and change the guy's calling uh, range. And then see what it did to your bottom line. Good luck to you. Okay. And I can hear myself back again, Alex. Okay. Um, I don't know why it's doing that. Sorry, sorry, guys. Some technical difficulties. The construction workers from Costa Rica have followed me. <laughs> it's, fine. So. it's fine. I just say it so that it doesn't... We just obviously couldn't go on like that. Uh, one of me yeah. is enough and one of you is enough. Uh, we, yeah. we start throwing it in. I mean, we're going to lose people. Um, <laughs> okay, yep. this one is... Let me see what one we're going to finish with. Right, we'll leave that one to last. We'll do this one. What's your number one thing? I sh- Actually, you maybe just already answered it. Uh, it's from Marcus. What's your number one thing I should be doing in poker just now, adding to my game or working on that would give me an edge over many recreational players? Thanks and love the show. Buy a lesson with me. Anyway, no. Uh, that should be your number one thing. Well, let me ask you a question. Well, uh, there's a couple things. While you're thinking, I think what you've just said is a great thing for some people that you don't see enough of, really. Like you say, it is no limit. People overbetting and people feeling that even, you know, on the river, the pot's 7,400 and people always built like make it 11,000 or whatever you know if you're deep enough and it's, it's mm-hmm. a, it, it just opens up a complete new dynamic really when you think of it it reminded me of a tournament I played recently there was this guy at the table never played with him he must have been 60 years old uh, I think he was an Arab I think he was certainly Middle Eastern anyway and um, he was a really you know he was in every pot whatever and I played a hand with Ace Queen um, I raised the three bet. I flatted. It came queen high. Long story short, he barreled like 
flop, uh, flop turn in river, and there was a missed flush draw, and the pot was maybe like four thousand eight hundred, and he just put nine thousand in, you know, from like a twenty thousand mm-hmm. stack, and I was sitting there going, like, what the fuck, you know, what I, what, what, what's the yeah, play? What do I do? And I'm like, what? And eventually I looked at him, and I just, you know, I was talking with him and that, and he he started talking to me, and I just made a read that he wanted me to fold and. I was like, oh yeah, I missed. I thought he must have flushed. Called, and I was right. But I mean, that was a spot. I was, you know, I wasn't sure what to do. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And the situation was, yeah, spot. yeah. And that's a guy that's, you know, the guy was just a complete gambler, or whatever. But he still like can put anybody in a, you know, and just go, what's happening here? You know, like what do, you know? And it was a strange, you know, if the flush came and he and he did that as well and he doesn't have the flush he's got bottom pair he's probably so it's still just because it didn't come actually made my call easier you know what i mean because it gave me the you know what he was sort of like doing or thinking but it's uh-huh. you can put people in spots by just doing that it's you mm-hmm. know it's really uh it's uh, you don't i don't see it a lot in tournaments i see it a lot in cash games but I really don't right. see it a lot in tournaments. You know, that's why I was like, "Shit, what's happening here?" You know. It's... Yeah, I, I, uh, every time I, well, one of the things, one of the times I use it all, always is the first two stages of a tournament. What does everybody do when they drive to a tournament that's an hour away or they fly there? They say, "Okay, don't screw this up." First two levels, they're re- everybody's playing their best poker. Then level three, everybody decides they're bored and screw it. So, level two, I on the river, I'll just bet 2.8x pot to shove the guy in. And I get a, I get a fold there 90% of the time because the guy doesn't want to go tell his wife that he busted 40 minutes into level two. Yeah. He just, he just doesn't want to do it. And a lot of times I pick a board where I'm pretty damn sure he has one pair. And nobody wants to – and I mean, if they catch me, they catch me. Such is life. I go to enjoy Vegas. I go to enjoy my life away from the felt. But they usually don't. It doesn't it, – this makes you really streaky, by the way. At the beginning of the year, I had a ton of online final tables. I had two live final tables. And then, you know, just two months, nothing happening. Then got into moving and teaching. Such, such is life. And I going back to the question – I think if you want to get better at poker, you must focus on what the fundamentals are. And the, fu- the fundamentals are not what everybody tells you. When you watch poker training videos, they spend exorbitant amounts of time talking about 7-5 suited, raising from early position, why they can make it work. If you go to the filter, the whole card filter, and know them and hold them, uh, excuse me, and hold a manager, you put it on your database, you're going to find 1% of your profits come from suited cappers. Does that seem like a good use of your time? All your money comes from playing your top, your your big pocket pairs better, going for the triple barrel more effectively, getting more action when you three-bet those hands. How do you get more action when you three-bet those hands? Well, you play the the hands from 10 to 15% better, like the the 11th percentile hands, 12th percentile hands, the suited, the really good suited gappers, the big broadways. How do you get more money with those? And then you use analytics. 
you use, you go over your database and look through it. You can't do a card runner's EV for every permeation of a three bet. You can look at every three bet you've ever done and see what profit you've done. Look at how much money you make with Jack Nine suited, Ten Eight suited, Nine Seven suited, Eight Six suited, all the suited broad, uh, the unsuited Broadways except for Ace Queen offsuit and Ace King offsuit. Look at how much money you make when you cold call with those hands versus when you three bet. It's going to be exorbitantly larger. And yet many of you will just keep flatting. And the same goes for pretty decent suited connectors. You make more money when you three bet them when the player is weak enough. And yet, because somebody on some training video at some point four and a half years ago told you 9-8 suited is a good flatting man and you like to see the flops with it, you call. Challenging your game every day is where the magic happens. The game changes constantly. Anything you do in life, you should ask yourself, where's the evidence? Why do I do this? And if you don't have the evidence, I don't know why it takes any place in your life. And the same goes for with gambling. You can prove all this stuff with Hold'em Manager. I'm not some wildly advanced IQ. I just play with the databases all the time till, and I ask better questions. If you, imagine there's this robot you could ask anything about poker. That's your database. Just ask, think of, dream up questions and see if you can do it. Working on your three betting, most of Master the Flop was about three betting the right hands in position, taking the flops, having the initiative, not letting the flop go uh, in a way that could, could down you. Uh, could destroy you. And then if you mastered three betting the right hands, taking care of those hands post-flop, a lot of times you'd be three betting winning pots without showdown. That pisses people off and boom, there's where you get your money with kings. And kind of having that interplay is really a big deal. It's not opening 9-7 suited under the gun plus one. That's chasing after nothing, in my opinion. That's the one... That's the ten per, it, it, That's part of one of these sectors of hands. That it's ten percent of hands that get you two percent of your profits. It's a poor waste of your time. All your money, ninety six percent of your profits, probably come from the top five percent of hands. That uh, that is very drastic, but I've seen that. Or the top ten percent of your hands get you ninety six percent of the profits. And. We're focusing on we're we're focusing on uh, watching YouTube videos about who did what at some World Series event. How much time do you Facebook per day versus how much time do you study? When you do study, is it just hand history reviews? It, you you got to think of it like this. Imagine a coach that just watched you play and said, oh, I wouldn't do that. I'd do that. Yep. That's most hand history reviews. 
when you actually get down to the database and you say, like, when you do this, you're just losing your ass off. But if you do this, you're going to be making money hand over fist. That's, that's where the money is. And that's mostly what I do in my lessons, and I really like my work. I mean, I can teach you without databases. I will teach you the things I've confirmed with database analysis. I do have access to live databases, not terrific ones, but I do. It's obviously really hard to get a large sample. Uh, but I do have friends that have tried to make live HUDs, and I have tons of hands from all my time playing, and I, I've been able to watch, look at my students' databases and confirm things across the spectrum, different nationalities of players, and more or less the same things work everywhere. And I've confirmed it myself by playing in Europe, Canada, and the United States, and the Bahamas over the last year and a half. So, yeah, anyways... But uh, I guess we have time for one more. Uh, yeah, the last uh, one's quite a good one to end on as well. Um, okay. It is from... That was the link, guys. from Stephen. Hello, I'm about to go on vacation and I love to get through a few books. I'm looking for you guys' top, recomm top book recommendations. Poker or gambling related, obviously. Thanks. Uh, I don't read a lot of poker books or gambling-related books, so maybe Barry would be better for this. Gambling Wizards? Uh, well, one would be uh, The Myth of Poker Talent uh, that someone wrote, <laughs> I know, uh, that Alex wrote. You could recommend your own book, Alex. Um, you I know, forgot you, I wrote one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, my, my, one would, my ones would be definitely Gambling Wizards that I mentioned at the start by Richard Munchkin. And I would also say Fortune's Formula, by William Poundstone. That's all about Kelly Criterion and bankroll management, but it goes into everything about uh, Ed Thorpe card counting, roulette, tracking. It, it, it just gets you thinking um, in that sort of way. And let me think. I'm actually looking at a bookshelf just now. I'm trying to see if there's anything else that jumps I, out. I read a lot of books about sports these days because... The thing about poker that we all forget is poker in its current form is very much in its infancy. No Limit Hold'em was so rare. People used to fly from out of the country to go to the stratosphere to play a $100 event that mimicked the World Series of Poker because it was so hard to find a No Limit Hold'em tournament like the World Series of Poker. No Limit Hold'em games got raided all the time. It was uh, No Limit Hold'em. The main event was on at 2 in the morning on ESPN. The year Huck Seed won, I don't even think they bothered to record it. They, so we have to remember that this game is very much from its infancy. If we want to see how the game is going to develop, we should look at how other games have developed. So I have a book on chess that I'm looking to get through. I've been reading a lot about uh, baseball and basketball analytics. I, I was reading books about... A, I, I read a book by a GM in football, how he picks players, how, how he doesn't pick players. And you'll find a lot of correlations. And I find also, if you're just... If you're a guy, a lot of this stuff is interesting to begin with. Athlete appraisal and whatnot... The other thing I like about athletes is they do not have time to talk. They get to the point. 
really quickly. And furthermore, they're in a business where performance is rewarded or you are destroyed based on your lack of performance. I find it very funny in poker, a very meritocratic institution. No college professor has ever transitioned into the game and just crushed it. Can you think of a psychology major that came into poker that just destroyed Barry? Not off the top of my head. How many ex-athletes have done well in poker? Thinking of a bunch of them right now, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Doyle Interesting, Brunson. huh? Doyle Brunson was... Doyle Brunson, college, uh, college basketball star. Uh, I believe... Well, uh, Patrick Antonius came from tennis. Uh, David Benjamin came from tennis. Mm-hmm. There's a, there a lot of... Uh, I remember at one point I had five... I had five students in a month that were ex-state wrestling champions. And the reason is these guys have to learn how to execute. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have a very high opinion of academia, especially in the United States. Because it seems like the people you know, and if you say the right buzzwords, and if you have the right politics, you, you get awarded with tenure. And if you say anything that rocks the boat, you will not get it. And that, unfortunately, is not how poker works. Poker is can you execute. So I learn a lot about how did these teams, against all odds, execute. And reading a lot about coaching is really important, too, because you have to coach yourself when you're a poker player. You will have to find a way to motivate yourself. So uh, I just read a book called Chasing Perfection. It was about basketball analytics. I really liked that one. Uh, the Water Boy was about the GM in football. That one I wouldn't recommend to the masses because that was, uh, it, it was pretty interesting, but it, it, you really have to be a big football fan to be into it. Anything by Michael Lewis is great. Uh, the, it, that that stuff actually goes into a lot of analytics. So so he wrote uh, the Big Short. Yeah. He also wrote. Yeah. Mo- yeah, yeah. He wrote Moneyball, which was about how this really poor baseball team in the United States got to the point where they won twenty four games in a row or something absurd, which just does not happen in baseball. And they were rocking and rolling and killing the MLB with no money and with these ragtag group of players because these analytics guys figured out what really mattered in baseball and they completely changed the game. Uh, the guy who enlisted all their help, was a f- he flamed out in uh, the MLB. He, wasn't, uh, he didn't do that well as a baseball player. And he reassessed his entire approach understood why he wasn't good as a player, found what actually made a great baseball player, and he became the highest-paid GM in uh, baseball. Or he did eventually get the offer. I think he turned it down. That would have made him the highest-paid GM in baseball. And it, it is really fascinating about what actually... And I think translating this into poker is where all the money is. In, in baseball, they were talking about on-base percentage is so much more important than so many other statistics. Because if a guy gets on first base and you know that guy's really good at stealing second, that's 
0.28 of a run in your back pocket. So the guy's just got to find a way to walk, and he's got to find a way to steal second. And if you can find guys like that, it doesn't matter if they can't really hit or if they're not really great fielders. They're just going to generate runs for you. And I started looking into poker like that and then using a lot of the coaching techniques from other games. Uh, Chess, I take a lot from chess. Chess is very fascinating. Another mind sport, as some blowhards call it. And many of the techniques that they use, chess masters use, translate very well into poker. Which is really funny. I don't think I've ever played a game of chess in my life, but I read about chess a lot. So, anyhow, uh, uh, anything else you'd like to recommend, Barry? Um, the other one I would say is Lay the Favorite is really good, and it's... Um Especially the guy said he's going on holiday, so it's a really sort of light read, but very good about gambling and um, bookies in Vegas, and really good story. Um, written by That's Beth fun. Raymer, it's good. It's a good book. You um, know what book? You know what book I would recommend? Uh, it, this is this just got me thinking. Uh, first of all, if you want light summer reading, Michael Lewis is just a, an amazing writer really easy to read and has a lot of ramifications for gambling. Uh, But there's this book called Stolen Season. And it's a guy in 1990, he came back from, he was a war correspondent, he came back from a war zone, I think to sort out his mixed feelings from what he witnessed. He decided he was going to drive an RV around the States and visit some absurd number of minor league baseball stadiums. And he interviews these guys who didn't quite make it to the major leagues. And they're, they're in just bizarre, weird places, Barry, right? And a lot of these guys were supposed to be the next best thing. They were the, the champions from their neighborhoods and all that. And they're living five to uh, one bedroom in uh, Lakewood, New Jersey, they're, and listening to how these guys talk about the game, why it is so important to be a part of the game, why they didn't give up on their dreams, I found it was so fascinating. It was, and it really made me realize there was one. There's one guy. He's he's a coach. He he got a little too old, and they said, if you could go back to the minor leagues right now, what would you do? And he said, if they drove up that, that bus, if they drove up the minor league team bus to my doorstep, I would get on it and I would ride it for every country mile. I'd do it all over again. Because there, it really made me realize the essence, the, the beauty of playing a game. Uh, why, why playing a game is such a big deal. And a lot of these guys, they end up, they're go-getters, they're athletes, they're they're focused. They know how to execute. They make good money selling cars afterward, or they work for companies, and they make hundreds of thousands of dollars selling whiskey and stuff like that. Uh, not the guy in the book, but I've heard of that story before. And they end up, they end up coming back to baseball and making next to nothing in these middle of nowhere places in the United States just to play a game for a living or teach a game for a living. And I found I found the philosophy very very interesting. It made me realize why poker is so special. Okay, and lots, lots of books to get there. Um, I hope it's a long holiday. He's going on. 
Yeah, I hope I hope so. Barry, are you by a freeway today? Uh, the window's open and it's a uh, uh, few roads, a uh, few roads going past, a few cars driving past. Yeah. Um, yeah, I got a few of them here too. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's wrap it up until next week. Uh, Alex, how can people get in touch with you for your webinars, coaching, etc.? Uh, if you want information on webinars, well, if you want to hire me as a private coach, I'm now full-time in that department. Write me at alex at pokerheadrush.com. Uh, if, you want to, if you want to hear about my webinars, write me at the same, uh, at the same address. Check out my blog at PokerAdrush.com, and please sign up for the email newsletter. I am sending out original content every week, and, and yeah, I just want more names on that list. Yeah, and I was mentioned in the most recent one. I read it yesterday or this morning. Um, oh, yeah? About taking shots or something. Yeah, you, you mentioned my, uh, my name in full, and I was like, oh, oh I'm famous. Um, <laughs> I'm in the Assassinato newsletter. I've made it. So um, I yeah, made it, Mom. Yeah, I made it. So uh, yeah, that's good. No, I always read them. I read the most recent one. I've got another one to read. I think it was called Stumbling or that. But yeah, they're always good. I would I would recommend that. Um, if you want to keep questions for Alex coming in next week as well, questions at oneouter.com on email, and we will get them read out. And uh, next week I will close the living room window because we're now into September. And Scotland's away to be cold again, so I won't need to have the the window open. Um, okay. It was just a bit a bit clammy tonight. Um, Alex, I hope it all goes well this week for you in Jersey, and you get further acclimatised and the lay of the land. And we will catch up next week, and you can answer some more questions for us. Yes, sir, I'm looking forward to it. Okay, thanks for listening. See you next week. Cheers. Cheers. The OSS Cubed is back with over $14 million in guaranteed prizes from September 24th to October 22nd, featuring $2 million Sunday tournaments on October 15th and October 22nd. And it's waiting for you at America's Card Room.